I invite you now this morning to continue in worship as we open our Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, this great book of wisdom in the Old Testament. Ecclesiastes, we're finishing chapter 1 this morning in our expository series of Ecclesiastes written by King Solomon, written by the wisest man in Israel until Jesus, the wisest man in all history other than Jesus, wrote this book to teach us a lesson. And we need to hear it. We need to listen closely. Today he's going to teach us about the failure of human wisdom. If you've been around long enough, you know that human wisdom will fail you sooner or later. Whether it's others telling you how to live or you yourself trying to figure that out. But we're going to see Solomon over the next few weeks go through his own trials and experiences with trying to live out human wisdom. We pick up today in Ecclesiastes 1, 12 through 18. I'll read the text to you. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. It is a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity or hevel, just literally uh, translated hevel for the Hebrew word, and striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. And I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I realize that this also is striving after wind. Because in much wisdom, there is much grief. And increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. Well, this is a hard lesson for many of us sometimes to accept. The failure of human wisdom. And really, he's addressing the question of, can education or job training or just increasing our own learning on our own by reading and studying and helping our mind to be wiser with more knowledge. Can that really answer the big questions in life? Can that really give us the ultimate answer that we need? That's what Solomon's goal is with this section here. He raises real issues throughout Ecclesiastes, real issues in this book that sometimes we don't want to face as Christians. Sometimes we want to think that life is going to be great now that we've been saved by Christ. And it will be compared to living as a sinner. It will be compared to hell. We get to go to heaven to be with Christ. But in this life, it's not pie in the sky. It's not a bed of roses. We will have troubles. We will have afflictions. We will be frustrated at times. And so King Solomon, he raises real issues about life and our purpose here on the earth. He doesn't shy away from complicated questions. He's not doubting necessarily here, although we know there was a time in his life where he ran from God. I think Ecclesiastes is his confession of what he did. And it's really in the Bible because he came back to the Lord at the end of his life. But he doesn't shy away from these things. He doesn't shy away from asking hard questions. It's why the wisdom books of the Bible are so important for us. It shocks us back to reality. It makes us realize our life, how short it is, what we should live for. And too many churches today really go away from solid truth of biblical teaching. And even if they have biblical teaching, they don't touch on the Old Testament or they don't touch at all on any teaching and preaching of the wisdom books. The church gathering is not an evangelistic crusade. We should be doing evangelism. We should be proclaiming the gospel to unbelievers. But Sunday morning is for God's people to come together and to be built up in the word, to be sanctified by the truth, to dive into scripture and come away praising the Lord, worshiping God through that, but also being built up for our everyday life. And that's what the wisdom books are about in the Old Testament, for everyday life, wisdom, how we live out the whole counsel of God, as Paul said. Paul didn't just preach a little tiny section of Scripture. He said he taught the Ephesians over three years the whole counsel of God. Old Testament, New Testament. He taught them the Bible. And so we return here to Ecclesiastes in verse 3. 
And we saw last week the main question he starts off with. And it really sets off the tone of the book. He's already told us in verse 1 of chapter 1 who he, who he is. He's already sort of laid out a theme that many people take pessimistically. But I don't think it's pessimistic. He's just saying, from our vantage point under the sun, look at this life as a vapor. Translation says vanity, but I think it's vapor, mist, fleeting. And he starts off in verse 3, what advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun. What's the point? What's the gain? What's the surplus left over when my life ends? What's going to carry over after I'm gone? And of course, last week we looked at a couple of answers that he tried to give. He told us that the natural world is always there. Observe how it remains the same. The world is here forever. The wind, the rain, things continue on just the way God designed them. But we change. We're suffering under this wearisome life at times because of sin. And then he went on in uh, verses 8 through 11 to tell us about human history, that people come and people go, and that they try to do things, but they're not remembered, and that they live for a moment and then they're gone. Well, today we consider two more possible answers. He says we've explored the natural world. We've explored human history. The answer's not there. So he brings up two more subjects now to study. And I'll call them science, which I'll explain more about that in a minute, and philosophy. Maybe the answer is in science and philosophy. If it's not in history, if it's not in observing the natural world, maybe it's in science and philosophy. Next week, we'll look at how he said maybe it's in pleasure. Maybe it's in pleasure. Live it up and enjoy life. Maybe the answer is there. Of course, we know that he's not going to find the answer in those places, but we've got to follow along these paths to learn from him, to see the mistakes he made so that we don't go down them as well. As a parent, you you want your child to not go down the same wrong paths that you went. Well, as our heavenly father, God doesn't want us to stumble and fall as his children. He doesn't want us to make the same mistakes that believers have made. We will often, but he's put these books here to teach us and particularly this book, to teach us about the answers or the main answer to that question. What is the advantage? What is the gain in all that we strive to do? So first of all today, I want us to look at the wise study of the sciences fails to satisfy. And verses 12 through 15. Now Solomon's had a lot of experience. He's been educated He's, you could say, got his Ph.D. in all things, including hard knocks, the school of hard knocks. And so he's going to lay out his credentials first as he tries to teach us that studying wisely the sciences will still not satisfy. He says in verse 12, I, the preacher, and you remember he called himself that back in verse 1 of chapter 1, Koheleth in Hebrew. Some say it's professor and some say teacher. I think preacher works well. He's got an assembly of maybe young men that he's teaching in Jerusalem. Maybe nobles. Maybe they will be the elders of the land someday. And he's teaching them how to live wisely before God. He's proclaiming a sermon over the 12 chapters of Ecclesiastes. So he's called the preacher, Koaleth. And he's getting very personal with the I pronoun. He's starting to talk about his own life. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. This is his personal testimony that he's starting to give. And he'll continue throughout chapter 2. I have been king for a long time. And I've tried all these things. Listen to me, he says. Listen. He has figured out by experience where the answers cannot be found. There's no reason for us to go down these paths because he's already done it. If Solomon, the author of this great book of wisdom literature, is going to give us advice, he needs to tell us his qualifications because we're just going to say, yeah, so what? You know, that guy lived 3,000 years ago. He hasn't been exposed to all the things we have today. He says, now hold on. I have been king over this nation, Israel, in the capital city, Jerusalem. He's been ruling there. And he's still king when he writes this book. Now, if we take the book to be written late in his life, which I do, he's approaching 40 years 
reigning as king in Jerusalem. So he's had 40 years as king. And if life on earth can offer anything lasting, then the wisest and richest king that ever lived on the earth certainly could tell us something about what he's figured out. He's ruling over the nation of Israel. These are God's people. These are God's people who have the Bible. They have the scriptures of God, the holy writings. And of course, Solomon is the wisest man who ever lived other than Jesus Christ. Go with me to 1 Kings, the book of 1 Kings. And I want you to see how God had blessed him. He asked for wisdom. He asked for wisdom and God gave it to him. God was pleased with that request. And I don't think God just suddenly snapped his fingers and Solomon had all this wisdom. I think God gave him the ability to learn it as he went along. God opened up his mind so that he could learn it at a very young age as a king. 1 Kings chapter 4 and verse 29. So Solomon asked and God gave it. Here's some of his credentials. God gave Solomon wisdom and very great discernment and breadth of mind like the sand that is on the seashore. So his mind could encompass all of this wisdom. It was, it was a great breath. And really, wisdom and discernment are very similar. Wisdom is the ability to know right from wrong, the ability to know to go this path instead of this path, the ability to discern between people, who's telling the truth and who's not, the ability to discern between what is good and pleasing to God and what is not. Verse 30, Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the east, that's Babylon, Assyria, and all the wisdom of Egypt. These are the mighty civilizations of Solomon's day. They had writings. They had wisdom writings. They had wise men. And yet Solomon's wisdom surpassed all of them. For he was wiser than all men. And then he lists some of the famous men in Israel. And his fame was known in all the surrounding nations. The other kingdoms, the other nations of the world in that region knew him. He also spoke 3,000 Proverbs. We have some of those in the book of Proverbs. We have some of those here in Ecclesiastes. And his songs were 1,005. We don't have very many of his songs. But he was so wise that he could write these things. He spoke of trees. From the cedar that is in Lebanon, even to the hyssop that grows on the wall. He spoke also of animals and birds and creeping things and fish. Men came from all the peoples to hear the wisdom of Solomon, from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. You might think trees, hyssop. He spoke of these things. He could describe them. He knew how they worked. He knew how they grew. He was very wise. So the book of Ecclesiastes, it's an inspired book by God, which is teaching us wisdom. The wisdom that Solomon learned. Yes, he made mistakes. Yes, he had a great fall. But he's come back to the Lord now. God has drawn him back near the end of his life. And he's teaching us what not to do. Right? Ecclesiastes is not an instruction book about what you should try. It won't work for you. It will end up badly. He barely, we might say he was saved by, by the skin of his teeth because of God's grace. He barely turned back at the end of his life. But God's grace was faithful and brought him back. But Solomon had all those credentials, all the money, all the wisdom. You don't have all those credentials. You certainly don't have all that wisdom. And none of us have all of that money that he had. I didn't read the passages where he was the wealthiest man in the world at the time. He has everything he needs. He's the wisest, most wealthy, most powerful man. And he's walked down these paths. And he's saying, don't do them. Now, let me tell you what they were, he says. Verse 13. I set my mind. I set my mind, which is literally in Hebrew, my heart. Yes, it encompasses the mind. It encompasses knowing, but it's more than that. To say my heart in the Bible means all of us. Bible scholar Daniel Frederick says, the heart is not merely an organ or part of the person. It's all of that person's total consciousness. Not solely just his intellectual reason, but experiential insight. That means living it out, trying it, testing it. 
experiential insight that has been gained through the avenues and alleys of emotional, sensual, physical, and spiritual experience. He's saying, I devoted myself fully to this, to this study. It wasn't a part-time gig. Maybe he even set aside the matters of state and let somebody else take care of them, the prime minister, whatever you want to call them. And Solomon focused on finding the answer to that question that he asked in verse 3, what gain does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? I set my heart to it. He's earnest about this. He's passionate about this. And he says, I set my heart, I gave my heart to seek. To seek means to search out, to search along already defined paths. He wanted to search along paths that had already been laid out by other people in the ancient world. He wants to dig into the roots of what they've written, what they've spoken, study up on things of the world. He's looking very wide. And it also says not only to seek, but to explore, our translation says, to explore, which means to spy out something, to investigate it fully. He wasn't just looking for all the books and scrolls and all the things out there that he could study, but he was exploring each one fully. It was a very comprehensive study. He investigated it fully. He tried new things based on what he learned. Oh, the book says this. I'll try this. This man spoke to me and taught me this. I'll try that. He wanted to examine all sides of what he found. His investigation was extensive. You can't say he missed any major area of his study. It was comprehensive. And here's what he wants to know. He wants to know how wise men and women in all the places in the world that he can reach with this message, he wants to know what they have to say about this issue. What's the point in all that we do? Because he says, I started out not really being able to answer that well. Even though God had given him great wisdom. Even though he knew the truth, he wandered away. And sin had started to have its effect on his mind, his life, his heart. And so he's searching under the sun. He's looking for answers. Dr. Bill Barrick says, At his command, at Solomon's command, emissaries traveled to India, to Egypt, to Ethiopia, to Babylon, to Greece, and to the othermost parts of the world in search of answers to life's most perplexing questions. He's looking everywhere. Give me some answers. The wisest people in the world, send your books to me. Send your scrolls to me. Come and visit me. Tell me. I'll meet you somewhere. Let's talk. Let's find out what the answers are. He wants to examine the whole range of human activities in search of anything. He's very diligent. He's very thorough. He wants to get to the bottom of it. And it says he did this by wisdom. Now, he's not studying wisdom here. He's using wisdom, the wisdom that he already had, the wisdom that God gave him. He's using it as an instrument to seek and explore. He knew if this was trash to throw away or it was something to study. He knew the nations to go to. He had that kind of wisdom. He had heard of the famous books and scrolls and scribes and people out there that he needed to hear from. He's not just haphazardly doing this study. He's getting his Ph.D. dissertation ready on this subject, we might say. He's very specific with his methodology. He's very nerdy, you could say. He's locked himself in a room. He's got all these books, and he's just going to sit there for five, ten years until he figures out the answers. So in these verses, he's not yet studying wisdom. He'll get to that later in the book, study wisdom for wisdom itself. But he's just using it as an instrument. And what is he actually studying? Look at the rest of this verse. Concerning all that has been done under the sun. Everything. All human activity. Anything he could find out about people, about events, catastrophes, kings, kingdoms, buildings. As a king, he had access to all of that. He had access to records and contacts that were not available to anyone else. Everything that man has studied up until that point in history, he wanted his hands on. Everything done under the sun. Give me some kind of answers. I would say he wanted to study science. The word here, science, we, we've sort of 
pigeonhole the word, but it just means to know. Originally, the word science meant to know. He wants to know about what man has figured out. The Oxford English Dictionary says that science is the intellectual and practical activity encompassing the systematic study. It sounds like Solomon, doesn't it? Systematic study of the structure and behavior of the physical and natural world through observation and experiment. He wants everything everybody's ever figured out about the way the world works, and he wants to study it. He's studying what's already been accomplished by man in the past. What kind of logic has already been studied and written about? What about architecture? Maybe he studied mathematics. Some of your favorite subjects, kids. I don't think algebra was around at that point yet. Zoology, chemistry, biochemistry, botany, astronomy. Astronomy was a huge subject. Astronomy was supposed to have the answers to life back then. Look to the stars, look to the constellations. He would have studied agriculture. He would have studied the pagan religions. He set up shrines for his wives out on all the hills. He would just marry a new wife every month, and he could just ask her questions about her pagan religion. He studied that, I'm certain. The weather patterns, physics. If somebody had written on the topic, he wanted it, and he wanted to study it. He's trying to get caught up on all the subjects. He's trying to be the wisest man in the world according to human wisdom. We've all thought similar thoughts, haven't we? Haven't we thought to ourselves, you know, I want to be the most knowledgeable person at my work. I want to be the, the most knowledgeable person in my church. I want to be the most knowledgeable person in my home, in my school. I want to grow in wisdom. Maybe I just need more education. Maybe that's why I'm struggling in life. Maybe I need more degrees behind my name, more letters. Read more history. Maybe that's the problem. I'm making the same mistakes because I need to pick up some history books, maybe some philosophy books, learn about Plato and Socrates and Aristotle. Maybe that's the answer. Maybe I need to study up on math or science. I don't know why anybody would do that once they're out of school, but my daughter loves math, so she probably would have issue with that. Maybe that's the answer. Maybe it's found in numbers. You know, a lot of mathematicians say that there's a lot you can see in numbers that people don't see. If only we could just get more knowledge. If only we could just get more education. You hear that all the time in the world. We need to educate our children more and more and educate adults and get more education. Well, here's what the wisest king that ever lived said. Here's what he discovered. It's a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men. That's his attitude. It's grievous. It's grievous. That's his attitude. Just as he started to study this, he hasn't even come to the final conclusions yet. This is the first conclusion that he gives. It's heavy, in other words. Grievous here, the word means heavy. Very severe, very serious. This is no light thing. This is heavy. It's heavy on my heart to even study these things, he says. Because he's not finding the answer. Because there's only one who can answer that question. There's only one, that's God. But he's not going there, not yet. He will eventually, but not yet. But he says, it's a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men. So at least he mentions God here for the first time in the book. Now he'll do so. He'll mention God about 40 times throughout the book. But God's the only one with the answer. And he's saying that God has given the sons of men here this task, this grievous task. The sons of men, the sons of Adam, literally Adam here, mankind. The word for God here is Elohim. Elohim emphasizes God as creator, God as sovereign creator over the whole universe and the one who holds it up providentially. Solomon is saying God has designed it this way. This is our task to study and try to figure out the answers in life. And he even says, or the NASB translates it, to be afflicted with. The term is just basically busy, busyness that is humbling. So it can be taken negatively sometimes in the Bible, but it's, it's a busyness that humbles us. I think that's a more neutral translation there. It's just busy, a humbling kind of busy. And God is the one who gave us this task. That's your task. Take the Bible away and now try to figure out life. Sometimes Christians do that, don't they? They just throw it on the shelf, let it collect dust, don't go to church, don't have any kind of input from preaching or teaching, and they try to figure out life on their own while still saying they're following the Lord. 
Solomon says it's a grievous task that God has given to the sons of men, to the sons of Adam, to be afflicted with. God's the one who's done this. He set it up this way. It's part of the curse. It's part of the fall. Go to Ecclesiastes 3.10. And maybe this is your first time to hear such things, that God is sovereign over all things, even our frustrations. Ecclesiastes 3.10. I have seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. It's the same thing he said here in chapter 1. Solomon says, I've seen it. Verse 11, he has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning, even to the end. He's put in our hearts this desire for eternity, this desire for things to last beyond this life. He's put it there. That's our natural tendency, Solomon says. He's created us. And he's created us with the ability to know that there's a God. Romans chapter 1 says, everyone knows that there is a God. They look at creation, and God has also put it in their heart to know there is a creator God. The problem is we don't give thanks to him. The problem is we try to go our own way. We don't worship him until we're saved. But that's not what he's talking about right now in Ecclesiastes. He's saying this is just how God has set up the world. And he's giving us a clue already to where the true answer lies. If God has set up the world like this, and God is good and true and merciful, then God will provide the answer. But we'll get there. It takes 12 whole chapters to get there because we've got to go down these paths that Solomon went down so we learn from his life. Otherwise, we'll just say, you know what? Yeah, God be praised and then go stumble tomorrow and stumble the next day. God be praised. Solomon says, hold on a second. Take my life and learn from it. I've seen, verse 14, all the works. I've seen all the works that have been done under the sun. He's looked at everything. He's looked at everything. All that man has accomplished. And behold, all is Hevel. Now your translation might say vanity, meaningless, purposeless. We talked in the very first sermon on Ecclesiastes how those aren't good translations. They'll work, but they just encompass a very small part of what this word means in Hebrew. Hevel is the word for breath, vapor, mist. All is a mist. I've done all this study, and I've looked at everything man has done, everything that has been written about this, everything that has been said about these things, all the accomplishments of man, and it's like a mist. It's like a vapor. That's my conclusion. There's really nothing to it when it comes to answering the ultimate question. What advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? What's left over after this life? I've studied it all outside the Bible. He's put that aside for now. And he can't find the answer. It's like a mist. And it's striving after wind. It's striving after wind. Now this, this phrase is the first time we've seen it. It really opens up what Hevel means. It's like under the sun. It's a key phrase in Ecclesiastes. And it's telling us, here's what Hevel really truly is. Other translations say chasing the wind or pursuing the wind. This word here for chasing, striving, pursuing in Hebrew, they've had some trouble trying to figure out where it came from. But the best suggestion is one of shepherding or herding. It's trying to shepherd the wind. When's the last time you got outside when the wind was blowing and tried to catch some wind. Can you do that? And can you take it and then herd it in the right way like sheep? All Solomon's learning, all that he's done to try to figure out this life and the answer to the big question in this life is like trying to herd the wind. The wind is fleeting. You can't catch it. And even if you could catch the wind, what would you have? Nothing. It's like chasing the wind. Or better today, it's like herding cats. It's like herding cats. Have you ever tried to herd a cat? Have you ever tried to actually train a cat? I'm not a big fan of cats, but when I was growing up, I really liked Siamese cats. So we got one, and my brother and I, we sort of uh, made this cat very mean by playing hard with it. So what would happen is we came through the house barefooted. The cat would come out of nowhere, claw up our feet, and then take off. And of course, when you looked over the back of the couch, what did you see? 
but a cat coming up right at your face, and often the cat would hook us in the eye or in the face. Nothing we did would help to train that cat. Nothing. That was a very mean cat. And then Solomon is saying, look, just like cats, you can't herd them. You can't do anything with the wind. What are you striving for? What are you chasing? He's not saying that all education is useless. Don't go home, kids, and tell your parents, see, pastor said, no reason to get educated. No reason, no reason to get trained in your job and do a better job as you work. No reason to read a book outside of the Bible. Not at all what he's saying here. What he's saying is the attempt to find some gain by human intellectual wisdom, some ultimate gain in life, is useless. It's like a wind. It's like a vapor. It's not going to answer the ultimate question. Yes, some education will help you in this life. will help you do your job better. will help you be a smarter person so you can study and read the Bible even. It will help you talk with people better. You need to know these things. But ultimately, it's not the answer. You can study. You can get five PhDs. Plenty of people go to hell with their PhDs and many subjects, even theology. So as the author of many Proverbs does, he's going to conclude this section with a proverb. Verse 15. What is crooked cannot be straightened. And what is lacking cannot be counted. There's something fundamentally wrong with the world. There's some effect because of the curse that's in the world. And it's bent because of that. There's something lacking and we can't figure out the solution. Things just don't work right. Things don't work like we want them to. People don't live as long as we want them to. We don't live as long as we want to sometimes. We don't get the promotion we want. Our kids don't turn out the right way. Sometimes children die. Things just don't happen the way we want them to. And Solomon says what's crooked cannot be straightened. What's lacking cannot be counted. We don't even know what we don't even know, he's saying. You can't even count the information that you don't have. You don't even know what you don't know. There's nothing we can do to fix it. Now that sounds kind of pessimistic, doesn't it? There's nothing you can do to fix the world. God has done it for a reason. He's put these things in the world for a reason. Go to chapter 7, verse 13. So this is a proverb. Proverbs is just a little pithy saying here to express the truth that he gives us in 115. Now go to 713. And he opens up a little bit on this subject in chapter 7, verse 13. He says, consider the work of God. For who is able to straighten what he has bent? God has done it. God has not done evil. He has not committed sin. He said he would judge Adam and Eve if they sinned. Now, he didn't take their life immediately, but spiritually they were cast out until he sacrificed that animal and, and showed them the truth of a life for a life. But when they were cast out, effects came upon the world, effects came upon humanity. He said childbirth would be difficult for the woman. The man would have to toil. He would have to get the bread from the ground by the sweat of his brow. And things in the world just don't work right. God has subjected it, Paul says in Romans 8, subjected it to futility. Things are, are frustrating, irritating. The world doesn't make sense. And we can't fix it because we're not God. That's the point. If the world actually understood this today, it would cause a big change, wouldn't it, in government, where we spend our money and our own families even. We can't fix the world. We don't even have all the information to fix the world. If we could fix it, he says. It's crooked, and you can't straighten it. But we see all the problems in the world, and we want to fix them, don't we? We want to fix them in our family, and our work, and our country. We don't have the power to do that, he's saying. Even Christians who have the gospel, which does have the power to take people into heaven, into a great and wonderful new heaven and new earth for eternity, we try to fix it here and now. Jesus said, the poor will always be with you. Give your money to help them. But you can't make poverty go away. Jesus said the gospel is what you need to take. And we have all these churches now saying they're going to fix racism. They're going to fix social justice, they call it. They're going to be social justicians. They're going to go out and make it so the world is one big happy place. Doesn't work, Solomon says. We are not God 
we don't understand all there is to know about this life in the world, and we certainly can't fix it. Here's why that's important. Warren Wiersbe says, if we spend all our time and energy trying to straighten out everything that is twisted, we'll have nothing left with which to live our lives. We do have a purpose in life, to live for the glory of God. But if we're trying to fix the world, where are we going to put our energy? Let me study as much as possible so I can figure out how to fix the world. Now, advances in medicine and science are great. But what do they do? Extend our life a little longer. Give us a few more days, months, and years. Thank the Lord we have that. Thank the Lord if if I break my arm, I can go and get it taken care of. But ultimately, what does that do for my salvation? What does that do for eternity? Solomon says. You can't fix it. But God knows what he's doing. God knows what he's doing. Isaiah 40, 28 says his understanding is inscrutable. It can't be figured out. Job 5, 9. Who does great and unsearchable things? Wonders without number. Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. The whole book of Job is about God. Why have you done this? Why have you made things crooked? Why have you made things bent? Why has my life gone like this? And God says, you don't understand. I have all wisdom. And you couldn't understand it even if you tried. So the response is to trust God. If we can't wisely study the sciences to figure things out, what do we have to do? To trust God. To fear him. Well, let's look also at the second part here. Number two, the study of wisdom itself fails to satisfy. So maybe if studying the sciences by wisdom, by the instrument of wisdom, doesn't satisfy, maybe wisdom itself is the answer. After all, Solomon had all this wisdom. Maybe if he went even further up with the wisdom, even further into the depth of wisdom, that will hold the answer. So verse 16 I said to myself, it's literally, I said to my heart. Anytime that comes up in the Bible, that's usually not a good thing. Remember the guy who built the barns? I said to myself, I said to my soul, I'll sit back and take it easy. I said to my heart, behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me. Now, some people say, well, this proves Solomon didn't write the book. Because he says, more than all who were over Jerusalem before me. And there was only David before Solomon, right? Actually, in the Bible, it mentions three other kings, non-Israelite kings in Jerusalem. That would fit this description. You remember a guy named Melchizedek? Melchizedek from Genesis 14, 18 was king of Jerusalem. Adonazidek, Joshua 10, 1. And Aruna, 2 Samuel 24, 23. There were other kings. There were other kings before David. And Solomon's just saying, I had more wisdom than all of them. He's the wisest of them all. Is this true? Yes, the Bible tells us that. Is there maybe some pride here? Is he maybe uh, patting himself on the back? Probably. Especially if he's in his sin, running from the Lord. So he says, I have all this wisdom. And my mind, again, my heart, has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. God gave me this wisdom, and I continue to observe wisdom and knowledge, facts about the world and life, into my mind. Go back to 1 Kings in chapter 10. Remember the Queen of Sheba comes to see Solomon? She heard about how wise he was. In 1 Kings 10, verse 7, she says, Nevertheless, I did not believe the reports that she had heard about him. Until I came and my eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. You exceed in wisdom and prosperity the report which I heard. I heard about your wisdom. And it was really only half of what you truly have. Skip down to verse 23. So King Solomon became greater than all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. So yes, he's patting himself on the back, but he truly had more wisdom than anyone. And so verse 17, here's what he decided to do. I set my heart, again, my heart. This is a heart issue. Heart, mind, whole self to know wisdom. 
Maybe if it's not in what man has studied and done, it's in wisdom itself. It's in philosophy. Philosophy. What is philosophy? Man's attempt to figure things out apart from divine revelation. Philosophy is man's attempt to figure things out apart from divine revelation. Divine revelation would be theology. You set God aside and try to figure things out with your own human reasoning. That's philosophy. So in verses 12 through 15, Solomon used wisdom as an instrument, but now he's saying, I'm going to study wisdom itself. That's where it's at. I'll be the greatest philosopher king ever. I'll be that philosopher king that Plato would later write about. He didn't know who Plato was at the time. Maybe there's someone out there who's figured this out through studying wisdom. I'll take some philosophy classes, read some philosophy books, listen to some lectures. And he not only wanted to do that, but also to study madness and folly. Not just study it, but know it. He's going to live some of that out. And we'll see that in chapter 2. Madness here is delusion, mental blindness. And then folly is just foolish living. We'll see in chapter 2 that he goes and lives some foolish living out to see what it does. Now, he's not saying anything about fearing the Lord here. He's not saying, I, I desire to study wisdom in the fear of the Lord. You see that in Proverbs. He's not there in Ecclesiastes yet. He's recounting his life. He's recounting the things he's discovered. He's seeking answers under the sun. Remember that phrase, under the sun. What's under the sun? On this earth, in this life. Apart from God, apart from divine revelation, he's just trying to figure out on this earth from human reason, philosophy, wisdom, human wisdom. You see, someone might say wisdom's no use. Someone might say to Solomon, well, wisdom's no use. You've got to live the foolish life to really know the other side of it. He says, okay, fine, I'll go live the foolish life for a while and figure that out. I'll study all the foolish people and the, the silly things that they do. Could God do that? Could God show uh, an example of foolishness to teach somebody to be wise? Yes, it happens many times in Scripture. Habakkuk 1.3 Why do you make me see iniquity? Habakkuk here is talking to the Lord. He says, why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Why, God, do you keep showing me what is happening to my people? And he goes on to say that it is a lesson. It is so that he can write it down. It is so that his people will remember. So madness and folly and wisdom, both sides of the spectrum. Just like Paul, when he went to Greece and he was preaching, there in Athens, there would be two groups of philosophers. The Stoics. The Stoics studied wisdom. They learned how to study reason, wisdom, and the Epicureans. The Epicureans said, live it up. Run away from pain and find pleasure. Madness and folly. So he set out to do that. And here's what he realized. Just studying wisdom by itself and madness and folly, I realized that this also is striving after wind. Man's best attempt to study philosophy, human reason alone, it just leads to more herding cats. It's not possible. You can't catch the wind. You can't keep the wind. In other words, it's an endless chase that never resolves. He's telling us not to spend our life trying to do that. He's saying it's like a doctor who can tell you the diagnosis, but he can't prescribe any treatments. He doesn't know how to treat your disease. That's wisdom. That's human reason. You go study it and you think, you know, Plato's got the answer. And you read all of Plato and you say, this is garbage. And then you read Aristotle. You say, this is garbage. And you work all the way up through the atheistic philosophers of today. There's no answers. The only purpose is to defend the faith and maybe do some apologetics and we could read those things to see how people think. But ultimately, it doesn't answer. It's like the field of psychology. They can make observations. They can tell you, what they observe may be accurate, but doesn't have the tools to fix the spiritual problems that we observe in our Christian life. Famous poet Ezra Pound, an unbeliever, said, All my life I believed I knew something. But then one strange day came when I realized that I knew nothing. Yes, I knew nothing. And so words became void of meaning. Atheists, maybe you've heard of him, Richard Dawkins, an evolutionist. He's concluded that human existence is neither good nor evil neither kind nor cruel, but simply callous, indifferent to all suffering, lacking all purpose. 
one of the wisest men according to science and evolution. And he says, life really just lacks all purpose. That's where human wisdom will lead you. Maybe you've heard of Stephen Hawking, the famed British astrophysicist who died a few years ago. He was called one of the smartest men in the world during his lifetime. Here's what he said. Spontaneous creation is the reason there is something rather than nothing. Why the universe exists, why we exist. He said there couldn't be a God and we just all started and were formed suddenly in the beginning. In his book, The Grand Design, he says, it's not necessary to invoke God to light the blue touch paper and set the universe going. And after referring to man as a computer, Hawking said, there's no heaven or afterlife for broken down computers. That's a fairy story for people afraid of the dark. Smartest man in the world. What's the best he could do? Just say there's not a God? That's not wisdom. That's not the wisdom of God. That's human wisdom, isn't it? So Solomon finishes here with another proverb. If all the things in the world can't even diagnose the problem, much less treat it, here's how he sums it up. Verse 18, because in much wisdom there is much grief. You spend all your day studying philosophy, try to figure out the answer to life, and it just grieves you. It pains you. It irritates you. Not only how can the world believe such nonsense, but, man, this is heavy. This has been going on for a long time. The more you study it, the deeper you get, the more you realize this is sad. No wonder the world needed a Savior. Look how sad and sinful humanity is. And he says, an increasing knowledge results in increasing pain, in heartache, in sorrow. The more you know, which is good. It's good to grow. It's good to be wise. It's good to learn some things of the earth. But it increases your heartache. It increases your sorrow because then you look around and you realize, wow, I really can't change all these things I want to change. I can't fix all these things. It's like watching your, your child make that mistake over and over or your adult child or teenage child making that mistake and you know it's going to cost them. You know they're going to have to pay for that. There's going to be consequences and it's painful for you to watch. They have to make their own mistakes, so you let them do it. But man, it's painful. And Solomon is saying, I know now all this stuff, and it just gives me more pain and more grief. He's not saying go home and never open a book. He's just saying you can't look for the ultimate answer there. More degrees won't do it. A few years ago, some atheists got together, the Humanist Council, they call themselves, and they wrote the Humanist Manifesto. A humanist is somebody who looks at humanity with great value and thinks that we're going to figure everything out. And they said in 1933, man will learn to face the crisis of life in terms of his knowledge of their naturalness and probability. Reasonable and manly attitudes will be fostered by education. Education will fix it all. They came back the second time, 1973. They said reason and intelligence are the most effective instruments that mankind possesses. Critical intelligence infused by a sense of caring is the best method that humanity has for resolving problems. We'll just fix it by getting smarter. We'll just get so smart, we'll be able to fix all the problems. And Solomon says it can't be done, and it just gives you more grief to think like that. Don't think like that. But realize that God knows. He knows what Solomon and we do not know. Lastly, let's look at Job 28. We're going to keep going back here. We've done it before. Go towards the left hand of your Bible there from Ecclesiastes, a couple of books, and Job 28. And we'll just skip to, to Job's high point, really, of his book as far as a conclusion about God. Job 28, 23. Is this pessimism that Solomon's talking about in Ecclesiastes? Is this give up all hope? No. He's saying hang on till the end of the book. But here's Job. God understands its way, talking about wisdom. He knows its place. God knows where wisdom is. For he looks to the ends of the earth and he sees everything under the heavens. See, we're under the heavens. We're under the sun. We can't see anything else but this. But God sees everything. He knows everything. When he imparted weight to the wind and meted out the waters by measure, when he set a limit for the rain and the course for the thunderbolt, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and also searched it out. And to man he said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. 
searching all these other paths in life. It doesn't fulfill. It doesn't satisfy. Studying the sciences won't ultimately satisfy you. It will help you do a good job in this life if you work in that field, but it won't give you the ultimate answer. The best scientists in the world concluded that belief in God is children sitting in the dark. But God says, I know it all. I created it all. And Jesus said, I have come to straighten what is bent. What did he do with those women and those children and those men that they brought that were bent and crippled, maimed and sick? He straightened them out. He healed them, which is just a taste of what's to come. When Jesus comes back, he'll straighten what's bent in the whole world. He'll straighten the whole world. He'll fix this problem that we can't fix. You see, God has designed it this way so that we'll give up trying ourselves to fix it and look to him. That's the ultimate point. I'll just skip ahead a little bit in the book and tell you that's the ultimate point. Give up trying to figure it out yourself. You can't do it by education. You can't do it by pleasure, he'll say. You can't do it by wealth. Just give up trying those things. Enjoy what God has given you now, but look to the future. When Christ comes back, we know the New Testament, when Christ comes back, he will fix all these things. It's not your job to fix it. It's your job to help those around you, to give to those who need it, to love them as your neighbor. But you cannot fix the crooked world. God will do that in his own time. Amen? Lord, we come to you this morning and we just ask that you would remind us of that regularly. We don't have all the answers. It is so prideful for us to think that we do, to think that we can fix everything in the world or even in our own life. We are fragile. We are still struggling with sin, uh, even as believers. And we need your help. We look to you for the ultimate answers. We go to your word to teach us. Because there's nothing under the sun that will help us with those problems. We can put a band-aid here and a band-aid there. But God, you have the ultimate cure. You have the ultimate solution, Lord. And it's Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so we look to him. And we look to the new heavens and new earth that will be made straight and pure and perfect. And we long to see that. Remind us of this regularly, Lord. In the name of Christ, amen.